Good morning, Woodside. How are you guys doing? It's an excellent time of worship. I love that new song. Uh, just go back and read some of those lyrics. They're fantastic. Um, you know, we've been raised to life to breathe His grace as captive now reclaimed. All our guilt is gone. All our striving cease. That's, that's so good. Um, in Psalm 62, my soul finds rest in God alone. Um, those are some really powerful lyrics. That's kind of what we've been talking about when we talk about Jesus. Um, but before we get into some of that, I want to um, tell you a little bit about something we're going to start next Sunday evening. Um, two weeks ago in Sunday school, we talked about uh, kind of a brief overview of the book of Genesis, and I quickly realized how much I love the book of Genesis and how important the book of Genesis is. Um, none of the rest of the Bible makes any sense without the book of Genesis. Uh, Jesus um, dying on the cross, forgiveness of sins, none of that makes any sense um, without Genesis. Um, so starting next week, we're going to slowly begin to work through the book of Genesis. So we have New Testament in the morning service, right? We're looking at the new creation. And then in the evening service, we're going to look at Old Testament. We're going to look at the first creation, the old creation. We're going to see kind of what we can learn from that. And I think this would be a really good opportunity for you to bring um, friends, especially um, non-Christian friends. There's just a lot of fascinating stuff that goes on at the beginning of Genesis that we're going we're gonna to talk about. We'll talk about the existence of God, how we can know about Him. We'll talk about how He created. We'll talk about science. We'll talk about its relationship to religion and faith. We'll talk about creation. Everyone fights. Did God create in six 24-hour days? Did God create in something longer? Is the earth 6,000 years old? Is it 100 billion years old or whatever people say it is? All these kind of interesting, fascinating questions. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at all that stuff. We'll look at the problem of evil in there in, in chapter 3. How can a good, all-powerful God allow suffering? And I'll, and I'll argue that only Christianity makes any logical sense of this. And then every week we're going to tie Genesis in to the gospel and Jesus Christ and show us kind of how all of this points us forward to Jesus. So please come and join us starting next Sunday. Um, please come tonight. We still have a message tonight. Um, tonight we're going to talk about the will of God and what that means and what it is. So if you want to know what God's exact specific will for your life is, I will tell you tonight if you come. All right, So come, come check out the message. Um, and it's a little, little teaser there for you. But join us next week for Genesis. Um, but this in the morning, we've got, we got work to do. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Mark 5, 21 through 43. Today we're going to wrap up a section, kind of one big section of Mark that's all about the same thing. Verses 4, or chapter 435 through 543. We split it up into three kind of different sermons, but each of these little subsections is kind of a different perspective on the same theme. This whole section is about the power of Jesus. So Mark is just continuing to build his case that Jesus is God, and as God, he is all-powerful. And thus, he is able to be trusted and relied upon. So we've seen Jesus' power in a number of different ways. We saw it in his power over nature and the calming of a hurricane. We saw his power over the spiritual world and his casting out an army of demons with just a word. And this morning, we're going to see the power of Jesus in two more ways. His power over sickness and, and, and disease and the healing of a woman with a 12-year affliction. And his power over life and death itself in the raising of a little girl. I have heard some people refer to this chapter, Mark chapter 5, as the St. Jude chapter. 
Because in Catholicism, Jude is the patron saint of hopeless causes. We have a man under the control of an army of demons. No one can subdue him. We have a woman with a 12-year debilitating ailment that no doctor can cure, and a dead girl. Right? These all seem to be pretty hopeless cases. And that, by the way, is the reason that St. Jude Hospital, have you ever heard of that down in Memphis? That's why it's called St. Jude Hospital, because it is devoted to treating supposedly incurable children's diseases. So they named it after the patron saint of, that is in charge of that stuff. But, as we're going to see, they would have been better off naming the hospital the Jesus Hospital, because I'm pretty sure that this 2,000-year-old dead guy can do nothing to help anyone. But Jesus' power is so great that all of these seemingly hopeless cases that we've been looking at quickly prove to not be hopeless at all when Jesus shows up. So now in just a few short verses, we've got Jesus' power over nature, demons, disease, and death. And that is pretty comprehensive. But notice that all of a sudden in our passage today, Mark is kind of drawing this section on Jesus' power to a close, and he is shifting the emphasis of the story a little bit. Jesus is always the main character. He is always the point. The passage is primarily about his power. But Mark now all of a sudden is giving a lot of attention to these two new characters, this afflicted woman and Jairus. And there seems to be a common theme that I think we're supposed to focus on in this passage, and that is faith. We've seen his power emphasized over and over again, but now Mark is kind of turning his attention and focusing us on what our response to that power is supposed to be. Faith. So that's what we're going to talk about. We'll see his power displayed throughout, um, but we'll also see the faith of these two individuals. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to kind of summarize the story and run through it really quickly, and then we're going to draw some conclusions about faith. So we're going to start by looking at the definition of faith, then we're going to look at the source of faith, the size of faith, the object of faith, and then the result of faith. All right, so that's what we're going to do. So look there um, in your Bibles or in your bulletins at Mark chapter 5, 21 through 43. Um, follow along as I read. This is God's Word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease." While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. 
And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let me pray uh, before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would focus our attention on, on this passage for these next few minutes, Father. I pray that we would see Jesus Christ and that we would draw from this what you want us to learn. Father, I pray that your spirit would be in this place and would work in this place and that you would speak through me and that you would get all the glory. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, remember a few weeks ago, we, we talked about what is called a Markin sandwich. Right? It's just a way that Mark writes. It's a, it's a literary technique that he uses to kind of make a point. So he starts off with one story, then he pauses in the middle of that story, tells a different story, and then comes back and finishes the first story. So Mark kind of does this to take two stories and tie them and relate them together to better make his point. Well, we have another one of those things today. Mark begins his account with Jairus and his daughter, then he pauses to tell the story of this woman with a 12-year hemorrhage, and then he finishes up the story of Jairus after that. So we want to kind of briefly run through the story and kind of explain it, and then we'll kind of draw some conclusions and applications from it. So, Jesus, remember last week, he was on the other side of the sea, he had gone over just to see this Gentile man and to heal him, and then he sails right back, and right when Jesus lands, the, the crowds are around him again. But then we are immediately introduced to a new character named Jairus. Right? And that's significant because Mark doesn't usually give names um, to anyone besides kind of Jesus and the apostles. So it's of note that he named Jairus. Peter knew this guy. This is where Peter lived. Peter remembers this very well and was probably close with him. And so right away we know that Jairus is important. He would have been well respected and well known as the ruler of the synagogue. He would have had great wealth and he would have been a figure of social Prominence. He is a man of authority and standing, yet we meet him and he is falling at the feet of Jesus. Now for, for a Jewish man to do this 2,000 years ago, he would have had to have been absolutely desperate and we quickly see that he is. His little girl is moments from death. And in Luke chapter 8 verses 32, Luke tells us that this little girl is his only child. And so Mark is kind of making the, the pressing urgency of the situation clear. Jairus, this important, reserved man, is, is pleading with Jesus. He's begging him and imploring him. And, and honestly, can we blame him? Put yourself in Jairus' shoes. His little girl is going to die at any moment. And the only person that can help him is finally arrived. He, he knew where Jesus was. All these people, it was a small town. They knew where Jesus had left. He was probably waiting, and Jesus arrives, and he comes. There's no time to, time to lose. He begs Jesus, and Jesus comes with him. But remember the crowd. We talked about the crowd a while back. This is a crowd of fans. They are, they are fanatics. They are pressing in around Jesus, just trying to get a piece of Jesus. Think of it kind of like a celebrity pushing through a big crowd, right? You've got like 
the security detail around him. They're, they're pushing through with a hand on his shoulder, kind of leading him through. That's, that's what's going on here. Jairus is leading the way. His disciples are crowded around him. They're just trying to get through, but the, but the progress is slow. And can you just imagine what Jairus is thinking here, right? I would be so frustrated as a father. His one little girl could die at any moment, and all of these frustrating people are just getting in the way and slowing Jesus down. But it gets worse. All of a sudden there in verse 25, the, the story just shifts its attention to this unnamed woman. All right, we're now from the first story in to the second story, and this woman is in bad shape. Right, she has had a flow of blood for 12 years that no doctor had been able to cure. And in fact, the doctors just keep making things worse. And that's actually not really a surprise. Doctors 2,000 years ago weren't that impressive. There's this book called the, the Talmud. Right, it is a collection of, of writings from a bunch of rabbis about 200 to 500 years after Jesus. Right? And this Talmud... With the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures were kind of like the authoritative Scriptures in Judaism. Well, the Talmud gives a list of a bunch of different remedies, kind of how to fix this problem for a woman who had this kind of condition. One of the things she was to do was she was to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer. But when it became winter, she had to transfer those ashes into a cotton bag. All right? So linen in the summer, cotton in the winter, and that would help kind of take care of her ailment. Or she could carry around a barley corn that was found in donkey dung. Right? This, this was kind of one of the other ways she was supposed to take care of this issue. Right? Not very helpful. Right? It's clear that none of these things are going to help her get any better. And she is desperate. She has wasted all of her money, and now she is broke and frustrated. So she's completely desperate. No one can heal her. Plus, this condition would have rendered her ceremonially unclean. I remember the leper from a couple weeks ago. Lepers were unclean, and thus they were completely rejected from society. They were treated as outcasts. They couldn't have contact with other people. They couldn't come into the synagogue and worship. They couldn't go to the temple. If they touched anyone else, that person became unclean. Well, that's basically what this woman was. Twelve years as an outcast, little to no human contact, rejected by the rest of society with no hope of restoration. But verse 27 tells us that she heard about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, for the first time in years, there's a slight glimmer of hope. So she acts on that glimmer. The crowd is actually helpful to her, right? She's not supposed to be there. She's not supposed to be touching anyone, but she kind of sneaks in. She sneaks up behind Jesus unnoticed, and she thinks, if I just touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately she is healed. She tries to sneak away. Again, unclean people do not touch rabbis. But Jesus won't get, let her get away with it. He, he calls her out. And though she's trembling and she's afraid, she, she comes to him, reveals herself, falls down at his feet, and explains everything. And Jesus replies beautifully. This is the only time he calls someone a daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And then with that, Mark just quickly right away turns back to finish up the first story. Poor Jairus. He's, he has got to be so frustrated. And I'm not an extremely patient person. Just ask my wife. I can't imagine in this situation how I would be reacting, right? Road rage times 100, right? But except there's like walking road rage behind lots 
of people. His little girl is about to die at any moment, and Jesus is wasting his time with a woman who has had the same problem for 12 years that he could just as easily take care of a couple hours later. So we have an emergency, and we have a chronic, non-life-threatening ailment. And Jesus decides to take care of the non-emergency first. This, listen, if this happened today, this would be malpractice, right? If this woman and this little girl were both in the emergency room, any doctor who treated the woman first while letting the little girl die would be sued for everything that they had, right? Jesus here does not seem to be the best of doctors. And Jairus' worst fears come true. Someone comes to him and says, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, here's another thing we're going to focus on. Jesus says now to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And they continue on to the house. When they arrived, there's this huge commotion. Right? Mourning and funerals and death were a big deal in the ancient Near East. Okay? Mourning, mourning was actually a profession. Right? You were a professional mourner. When someone died, you would go hire mourners to come in and kind of make a big deal and mourn and weep. And wail. One rabbi, just right after Jesus writes that even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. Wouldn't that be a cool job title? What do you do? I'm a wailing woman. Uh, that would be, that'd be pretty neat. But see, you at least had to have two flute players, one wailing woman, but we know that Jairus is a man of means. So there was probably this whole army of mourners here at his house. But we know that their mourning is not sincere because when Jesus arrives, they switch immediately from sh fake, showy emotion to laughter when he announces, the child is not dead, but sleeping. So he goes in with the parents and in one of the sweetest scenes in the Bible, he, he takes the dead little girl's hand and he simply says, Talitha kumi. And Talitha was a term of endearment, right? It was something a mother would lovingly call her daughter. It would be like honey or, or sweetheart today. And kumi simply means get up. Jesus is doing exactly what a mother would do to her little girl on any regular morning. He takes her by the hand and says, honey, it's time to get up. And she does. And everyone is immediately overcome with amazement. Right, and this is the, the first resurrection in the book of Mark. Jesus is showing his power over the ultimate enemy, and he is giving us a foretaste of what's to come. But we're going to come back to that at the end. So that's kind of just really quickly the story, right? We've got to have a good grasp on the story so that we can kind of better draw from it what we are supposed to learn. So for the rest of our time, I want to I kind of narrow in and focus on Jesus' statements to each of our characters. Your faith has made you well, and do not fear, only believe. Right? These two phrases are only separated by one verse, right? and they kind of come right in the middle of the story and serve as the center around which the whole rest of the story resolves. Right? This is the point, right here. And notice the two different words we have. We have faith. And the first one, and then we have believe in the second one. Well, in the Greek, right, in the original language this is written in, it's the exact same word, right? It's pistis and pistuo, same word. Pistis is the noun, pistuo is the verb. Noun form, verb form of the exact same word. And both mean to believe or to have faith because belief and faith are the same thing in the Bible, right? And the words are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. 
Back in Mark 1.15, Jesus comes and he announces, he says, repent and believe the gospel. It's the same word there, right? It's the believe, have faith, all of those things are the same thing in the Bible, right? They're not, they're not different at all, okay? And so Jesus tells this woman, he says, hey, it is your faith that has made you well. That sounds important. Ephesians 2.8 says that we are saved through faith. So this is an eternally important question, contrary to whatever the Pope may say. A couple of days ago, I like to keep up with the news, I was reading this British newspaper online, right? it's called the, the Independent, and there was an article on it that was titled this. It says, Pope Francis assures atheists you don't have to believe in God to go to heaven. Right? And the gist of the article was that the Pope is now teaching that God will forgive atheists and anyone who simply lives morally and behaves according to their conscience. Back in May, he sparked a big controversy by saying something similar. He said, the Lord has redeemed all of us, all of us, with the blood of Christ. All of us, not just Catholics, everyone. Father, the atheists, even the atheists, everyone. So he says, God has died for and redeemed everyone who ever lived. But as nice and as tolerant and as warm as that sounds, it is utterly garbage. And it demonstrates a lack of basic reading comprehension skills on the part of the Pope. All right? A second grader can read the Bible or just read this passage and understand the importance and the necessity of belief. There's a man, he's kind of famous, you probably haven't heard of him. His name is David Silverman, right? He's, he's the president of American Atheists, right? So he doesn't like the Bible. He thinks everything that we believe is dumb. But even he can read and understand the Bible's basic teaching here better than the Pope, right? In response to this claim by the Pope, Silverman, remember, an atheist, he replies, the concept of Jesus dying for atheists is wrong on many levels, especially given that Jesus himself promised hell for blasphemers, right? Even an atheist recognizes that this teaching is ridiculous. But if you think about it, the Pope's teaching here is simply the logical conclusion of unlimited atonement. Right? The idea that Jesus Christ who died for everyone who has ever lived. Notice what the Pope says. He says that Jesus has redeemed all of us. And the Pope is right if Jesus died for all of us. Because if he died for all of us, then he redeemed all of us. Because every time the Bible talks about the atonement, about what Jesus accomplished in dying on the cross, it talks about something that has actually been done or accomplished. Not something that is just potential. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus made purification for sins. He did it. Right on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. It is something he has done and accomplished. Romans 5.10 says that Jesus' death reconciled us. It brought us back to God. Isaiah 53, 5 says that we are healed by his stripes, by his wounds. Purified, redeemed, reconciled, healed. This is what Christ did on the cross. So if he died for everyone, then he did all of those things for everyone, and the Pope is completely correct. And then belief and faith are not necessary, as the Pope teaches. But Jesus comes and says to this woman, he says, your faith has made you well. He says to Jairus, believe. Mark 1.15 says, repent and believe in the gospel. I mean, good grief, the most popular verse in the Bible says it. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever, what? Believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And it obviously follows from that then that those who don't believe will perish and will not have eternal life. As Jesus goes on and says in verse 36, faith and belief are absolutely necessary. Right? They are all over the Bible. And to try and to teach the opposite proves that you're not teaching the Bible. Contrary to the teaching of the Pope, the Bible is clear that there is no salvation apart from belief. And if the Bible is right, and one of the key tenets of Christianity is that the Bible is right, then faith is critically important. So we better know what faith is. It, it was this general kind of misunderstanding that the popes and the Catholic Church had of the nature of faith and how God saves that led to what is called the Reformation about 500 years ago. Remember, the Reformation was when, you remember, the Protestant churches split off from the Catholic Church because of this question of, of justification and, and faith and how God saves. Right? Those, those that kind of went before us and paved the way for our present day Baptist churches and other Protestant churches insisted that faith was important and that it must be defined by Scripture and not by the Pope. And one of the, the two key figures in leading that split away from the Catholic Church and paving the way for what we do today was a man named John Calvin. And he defined faith like this. He says, faith is a firm and sure knowledge of the divine favor toward us. Faith is a firm and sure knowledge of God's favor toward us, founded on the truth of a free promise in Christ and revealed to our mind and sealed on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Right, he, he boils that down and then later simply says that faith is just simple confidence in God's goodness and His salvation. Faith is confidence. It is, it is trusting in God's goodness and His saving activity. I've mentioned before that Christians have historically understood faith to consist of three parts. Remember, you can remember it by the acronym, K-A-T. Faith consists of knowledge, the K, assent, and then trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. And all three must be present for there to be biblical saving faith. So faith is first knowledge, which is acquaintance kind of with the content of the gospel. You have to know something about Jesus before you can believe in Jesus, right? People just say, oh, just, just believe. In what? What does that even mean? No, you got to believe in something, right? You can't believe in something that you know nothing about, right? So there has to be knowledge first. Right? But faith isn't just knowledge, it's more. It is also then assent. That's the A. It just means agreement. It is the recognition that that stuff that you believe, that knowledge, that the gospel is true. It is saying, yes, I know that that's true, and I believe it to be, yes, I know that information, and I believe it to be true. So that's the knowledge, and then that's the assent. But even those two together are not biblical saving faith, because you have to have the T, which is the trust, right? Trust is just the personal dependence, the, the, the choice to rest on the grace of God for salvation, right? We can't just know something and say we think it's true. We have to act on it. Faith is not some leap in the dark, right? In the Bible, there's, this, there's no concept of this blind leap of faith. Faith is trust or belief based on the testimony of another, in John 20, 31, John writes, 
These are written. He's talking about everything he just wrote, the Gospel of John. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Listen, God never asks you or never tells us to just believe for no reason. Right? Most people understand faith today as kind of believing when there's no evidence. Right? People are always making fun of people with faith. They're like, well, well, faith just means you don't have any evidence for something. Or it means believing in something even when the evidence tells you the exact opposite. But no, that is not a biblical understanding of faith. Look at what John says. I wrote these things down so that you could know about Jesus and then believe. And we see the same thing in our story this morning. This woman wasn't just kind of rolling the dice and picking a random rabbi like, oh, maybe this one will heal me or maybe this one will heal me. No, verse 27 says she had heard the reports about Jesus. Right? Her decision to trust to, to choose, to step out in faith was an informed decision based on the testimony of people that had told her about Jesus. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we preach sermons. That's why we constantly talk about Jesus, so that you can be more informed about Jesus, so that you can learn about him, who he is, what he is like, and just how trustworthy he is. I'm not asking you to take some sort of random, illogical, blind leap of faith. I'm asking you to examine this amazing person, Jesus. And I think the evidence is overwhelming that he is who he says he is and that he is the only one that is worthy of our trust. And that's all faith is. It is trusting Jesus. It is clinging to Jesus. It is resting and relying on him. It is K-A-T. Right? Faith is first knowledge, knowing about Jesus, then it is assent, agreeing to the truths about Jesus, and then it is trust, trusting in him as our only hope of salvation. That's faith. Are you, at this moment, trusting in Jesus Christ? So that's the, the definition of faith. But what about the source of faith? Where does faith come from? If this faith is so important, if it is how we are saved, then how do we get it? How do we kind of conjure up this faith in ourselves? Well, our passage this morning doesn't give us a particularly clear answer. We've already seen that, that faith is based to some degree on testimony. Right? That's what the Gospels are. The Gospels are simply testimony. They are a record. They are evidence about what Jesus has done and who he is. And that you can then read and then choose whether or not to trust in him. But all we're told in our passage this morning is that these two individuals had faith. Did you notice, by the way, that it was in this midst of a huge crowd that this touch of Jesus saves this woman? Jesus says, what is he? he says, somebody touched me, uh, who was it? And the disciples basically make fun of Jesus here, right? That's, that's a bold move, you know, just to kind of make fun of Jesus to his face. You know, like, oh, well, Jesus, everyone is talking, touching you. You know, it's this big crowd around you. What are you talking about? A hundred people are touching you every minute. But all these people are touching him, but we're only told that one of them was healed, this unnamed woman. And we're told that it was because of her faith. But should be, all these questions should be going off in your head. Why her? Where did she get that faith? Where does faith come from? Philippians 1.29 says that it has been granted to you that you should believe. Ephesians 2.8 and 10 says that faith is a gift. Of God. Romans 12.3 talks about the measure of faith that God has assigned to each person. Other translations say given, 
there. The King James says that faith, it is the faith that God has dealt to each person. King James of Hebrews 12 too, describes Jesus as the author of our faith. In other translations say the founder or the initiator. Articles 10 and 11 of our articles of faith say that salvation is brought about by our sovereign God solely by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the fruit, the, the evidence of that salvation is faith and repentance. Right? So, so the Bible, the New Testament, and our articles of faith agree that, that faith is a gift that God gives us at the new birth. Hebrews 12.2 is very clear that Jesus himself is the source of of our faith. Right? It's not some like meritorious work that we create within ourselves. Like I've, I, I've drubbed up and created all this faith, so now God's going to be impressed, and now God's going to save me. No, that's works-based righteousness. It is not something within us that is better than other people. No, it is a gift, and it is a gift that God graciously has given to our two characters this morning. So that's the source of the faith. It is given by God. But what about the size of the faith? Think about this woman. Jesus commends her for her faith. But what did she believe? Well, she believed that if she could just touch Jesus' robe, she would be healed. Listen, that's not a robust, well-informed biblical faith. That is much closer to magic or superstition. That's like those weird kind of TV evangelists that like bless these handkerchiefs and they wave them around for me. Like, if you just send me $50, you can get this magic handkerchief and you'll get kind of all these cool miracles, right? Crazy stuff like that. Her faith wasn't that accurate and it wasn't that big. If I just grab and run, hopefully that will work. Listen, God does not need this big, grand, perfect faith. He just needs you to trust. Faith, he describes like a little child. I hear all the time people come and talk like, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm worried about my faith. You know, I've got all these doubts and I've got all these struggles. Sometimes it, it's just hard, right? Do you think that it was easy for this woman to do what she did? She was not allowed to be there. She was taking a great risk. And we see there in verse 33 that she comes in fear and in trembling. This was not easy. Faith is not guaranteed to be easy, right? Shortly after his, his definition of faith, Calvin also writes, he says, no man ever believes without an arduous Struggle, right? Because we are so sinful, right? We are so self-focused on, on who we are and what we want and what's best for us that it is so hard for us to let that go and rely and trust on someone else. It is not the size. God doesn't need big, perfect, strong faith. Matthew 17, 20 says, Jesus is talking, he says, because of your little faith, and then he writes, for truly I say to you, if you have faith, like the grain of a mustard seed. Remember, those things were tiny. It says, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. God does not require big, strong, perfect faith to work. And that's why those, those crazy healers and, and televangelists drive me crazy. You know, they're like, if you just had more faith, God would perform a miracle in your life. But that's just not Biblical, it's not the amount of your faith that matters. And that leads us then to the most important aspect of faith. If it's not the amount that matters, then what is it? Faith is so powerful, faith is only able to save because of the object upon which that faith rests. 
This woman was not healed simply because she had some sort of like abstract, undirected faith. No, she was healed because of who that faith was in. It is not the faith that matters. It's the object of the faith. And this is exactly the opposite of what you'll hear out in the world today. You always hear people say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. As as long as you believe it with all of your heart. You know, just, just be sincere. And that's basically what the Pope, the leader of one billion Catholics in the world, is now teaching. Just be your best you. Just believe whatever you want, but believe it really hard and you'll be okay. Guys, listen, there's nothing inherently special about faith in and of itself. Faith is not just some Christian thing. Everyone has faith in something. Everyone trusts in something to fulfill them, to give them meaning, and to save them. So it can't just be the the fact of having faith. Everyone has faith in something. It's the object of the faith that matters. It's, it's what it is that you are resting your faith upon. And this kind of ties back and links to the size of the faith question. All right, uh, think of it like this. It was nice and cool this morning, so I'm getting excited about winter. Here's a winter illustration for you. Picture three guys, right? It's, it's like the dead heart of winter. They're running through the woods. It's super snowy, and they're being chased by this giant rabbit bear. All right? This bear is going to kill all of these guys. So they're running as fast as they can to get away, and they come to a ledge, right? And they realize right away that their only hope of survival is to jump off that ledge and to land on the frozen pond below and just hope that the ice holds. Because if they go through the ice, they're dead. So their only hope is that the ice holds them. So the first guy goes, he jumps, and he screams, terrified, the whole way down. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. There's no way this ice is going to hold me. I'm going to drown. But he hits the ice, and it's solid, and it holds. Well, the second guy thinks he's a little more analytical. He's like, you know what? 50-50. I think I got a good chance here. I might go through. I might not. I'm going to go for it. So he jumps. um, He lands. The ice is good, and he survived. But the third guy, he's an outdoor. Right? The third guy knows this stuff. He's like, well, it's February 9th. It's like 16 degrees. I know the ice is approximately like 8 inches thick. I know 100% sure that this ice is going to hold. So he jumps and he lands and the ice holds. All are saved. Which one of these guys is more saved? Is it the third one because he had more faith? No. Right? They are all equally saved because it has nothing to do with the amount of faith. Right? It has to do with the object of that faith. And the object of their faith, the ice, was solid. So they lived, even though one had a little faith and one had a lot of faith. Right? How much faith do you have to have in the ice for it to save you? Just enough to jump. Right? How much do you faith do you have to have in Jesus Christ for him to save you? Just enough to come to him. Listen, it's not the size that matters. We are not saved by our faith, right? The text in Ephesians 2 says we are saved through our faith, right? It is the instrument that God uses to save us. We are saved only by grace. We are saved by Jesus' work on the cross in our place. It is something that he does and something that we receive by faith. This woman and Jairus' daughter were not healed just because they had this great faith that no one else had. They were healed because of the greatness of the one that they placed their faith in. 
They were saved by the power of Jesus Christ working through their faith. Does that make sense? Right? We are saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through the faith. Grace actually accomplishes the saving. It is the basis or the ground of our salvation. And faith is the instrument through which God applies it to us. Listen, no one is justified by faith. No one is justified by faith. We are justified by Christ's righteousness given to us through faith. Faith is the, just the receiving of the gift that God has given to us. It is not us offering to him some gift that he should be impressed with. He says, okay, well, now I'm going to save him because they had this really good faith better than other people. No, faith is simply laying hold of what Christ has gracefully done for us and then offered to us. And that's why ultimately Jesus is the point of this story. His power is still the main focus because it is his power that actually accomplishes what their faith takes hold of. Without Jesus first, without God's initiative, without him stepping out and pursuing us and saving us, then any sort of faith that we may have would be useless. And we spent these last few weeks talking about the great and unmatched power of Jesus because I want you to know this Jesus and trust this Jesus because he is so worthy of our trust. In fact, he is the only thing that is worthy of that trust. He is the only object of your faith that can withstand the weight. And you're all putting faith in something. Anything else you put your faith in will collapse under the pressure eventually. Your spouse can't handle your trust. Your job can't handle your trust. Money, sex, family, boyfriends, girlfriends, yourself, none of these things can withstand being the object of your faith. None of them are powerful enough. And that leads us to our final point, the, the result of our faith. None of these things are powerful enough, but Jesus is and we see his power displayed so magnificently and yet at the same time so gently at the end of our story as we see him demonstrate his power over even death. Jesus is so powerful that with him, death is nothing more than sleep. Death is our one great enemy. I don't care who you are, everyone fears death. If you don't, you're lying. Whether you admit it or not, at some point in time, everyone struggles or wrestles with or fears death. Death. It is the big, looming question hanging over everything that you do. You're going to die. What happens after that? You're going to die. Does anything you do before that have any value whatsoever? But Jesus offers us great comfort and his power over our great enemy, death. But he gives us just a taste in this story. This is just a temporary reprieve. This little girl will die again. But Jesus is pointing us forward. He's, he's telling us about what he's going to do in just a little while on the cross. When he will bring complete release from the power of death through his own death. And that's part of the beauty of Christianity. It is death defeated by death. It is victory guaranteed by defeat. Christ submits himself to our great enemy death. But then three days later, he comes back to life, killing death in the process. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56 reads, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We just sang it this morning in that beautiful hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. He lives that death may die. I love that line. That death may die. This is the result of our faith. Right? For, for these two characters, it was, it was a healing and a resurrection. But for us, it was something even greater. It was forgiveness of sins and salvation. Jesus Christ has defeated death for us by his great power. And he offers to save us through our faith. A faith that he so graciously gives to us. Just think back for just a second to the Pope's claim that you don't have to believe in God to go to heaven. Just be good and follow your conscience. This is nothing but works-based righteousness. It's not the gospel at all. The Pope is preaching salvation by works. Be good, follow your conscience, and you'll be saved. But his teaching then is no different than basically any other religion out there. But it is very different from the gospel, which says that no matter how hard you try, you cannot be good enough. Right? That's why we need Jesus. That's why he comes, because we cannot do it ourselves. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Religion and the Pope tells you something to do. The gospel tells you something that has been done for you. And that's why faith and belief are so critical. God saves us, and he applies that salvation to us through faith. So let me close simply by asking, do you have faith in this man? Do you believe in Jesus and do you trust Jesus? God can do great things through our faith and the greatest of which is to free us from the chains of sin and death and reconcile us to God and give us eternal life. Do you believe this? If not, why not? Because the evidence is there. Jesus has shown us his great power to save. And he has shown us that he is, above all others, the only one that you can trust. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we thank you um, that in it we learn about salvation. And we learn about that salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for sending us your son. For sending us a perfect substitute to, to stand in our place and to take on our punishment and our sin and our death for us, and to give us his life and his relationship with you. So, Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you and pray that you would continue to grant us faith and repentance. Father, I pray for anyone in here who does not know you, that you would work in their hearts, Father. Um, show them their sin, bring them about, bring them to repentance. Father, fill them with faith. Father, we pray that you would save them. Bring dead hearts back to life this morning, Father. Not by anything that I said, but by you and by your word and by your spirit. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for just the blessing and the opportunity it is to come into this place and to worship you. We pray that you would bless us as we go from here, Father, and that you would get all the glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.